Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome along to the Slacktivist Action Group. We have the referendum coming up for the EU. Boris Johnson has been described as a cut price Donald Trump. And there are certainly some similarities. Donald Trump married three times, Boris married twice, and has had at least three documented affairs. And you're thinking, what are the tabloids waiting for? Paddy Ashdown got known after one affair as Paddy Pantsdown. Surely the papers should be having more fun, given that Boris's surname is Johnson <laughs> and his initials are BJ. <laughs> and Boris last week was saying that you couldn't actually buy bunches of bananas thanks to EU regulations in more than bunches of two or three. So loads of people then went on social media with a bunch of four bananas, didn't they? Going, fuck you, Boris. <laughs> And then Boris said, no, I got it wrong. Basically, what I was saying was, you can only buy bunches of more than two or three bananas. You can't buy bunches of two or three bananas. At which point, people got their bunches of four bananas, ripped them in half, and went, fuck you, Boris. <laughs> Turns out that you can, in fact, have bunches of bananas of as many as you like. Retailers can sell them. Basically, what the EU regulations say, they say you can have a hand of bananas with as many fingers as you like. Now, I was unaware that a bunch of bananas was known as a hand or that an individual banana was known as a finger. Certainly, if you went to a fruit and veg shop, saw a banana and said, please, could I have a finger? <laughs> it's risky, ladies and gentlemen, it's risky. <laughs> but there have been loads of you myths, haven't there, over the years about bananas. We had one, didn't we, saying, oh, you've got to ban them because they're all straight. We're going to ban straight bananas. Then another one, we're going to ban curved bananas. Now, where have all these Euro myths come from? Well, most of them seem to have been dreamt up by Boris Johnson himself when he was the Brussels correspondent of the Daily Telegraph. The difference between then and now is that we now have Channel 4 Fact Check, which is essentially somebody following Boris Johnson around and every now and again going, bullshit. <laughs> 
But it turns out people do care about the shape of their bananas, don't they? Because you can now buy for £2.41 a banana lunchbox guard holder carrier. A little banana-shaped lunchbox to stop your banana getting squashed on the way to work. Why don't people just buy a larger lunchbox so you can fit a sandwich and a banana into the lunchbox? Because at the moment, if you don't have a banana to take to work, the banana-shaped lunchbox isn't much freaking good unless you cut your sandwich into the shape of a bloody banana. And it turns out the reviews for the banana guard lunchbox aren't very good because it turns out a lot of bananas don't actually fit the banana guard lunchbox. So it would be quite useful, though, wouldn't it, to have EU regulations about bananas, because at the moment, if you want something to fit into your banana-shaped lunchbox, you actually have to take your banana guard lunchbox down to a fruit and veg shop to work out which bananas actually fit into the lunchbox itself, which probably get you some funny looks from the fruit and veg seller, regardless of whether you've asked for a finger or not. <laughs> And then when it comes to it, you'll see online, right, this banana guard lunchbox comes with an integral fork. Who eats a banana with a fork? Because let's face it, the only reason you'd have a fork is probably to mash the banana, and if you were going to mash the banana, it wouldn't matter if it was a bit squashed in the first place. <laughs> it is consumerism gone mad, isn't it, ladies and gentlemen? Which is very ugly in the time of austerity. It's like these people who go, oh, look at my diver's watch. Look at my diver's watch, yeah, it goes down to a depth of 200 metres, this does. 200 metres is the depth of the North Sea. If you find yourself at the bottom of the North Sea, you're not diving, are you? <laughs> the ship has sunk, the air bubble is running out, and it's little consolation you know what the sodding time is. So with that, would you please welcome to the stage our three guests for today. Would you please welcome Damien Green MP, author and broadcaster, Anita Anand, and comedian, stand-up podcaster, and ambidextrous spin-fast medium bowler, Andy Zultzman! <laughs> Andy, would you like to start us off? What are you a bit slack about that you'd, uh, in an ideal world, you'd be less slack about? Well, uh, I mean, I'd probably do more to create world peace. Um, I think that would be a really good idea. Uh, could benefit the planet as a whole. Um, I probably don't do enough to try to spread the word of cricket to uncivilised countries like the USA. <laughs> Most of the world's problems, historically, excluding little ups and downs in the history of the British Empire have been caused by one or both sides involved not being cricket-playing nations. So, I mean, you, you, you extrapolate that. Then, um, surely, if everyone in the world played high-level test match cricket, we'd live in an eternal utopia. Apart so, from the fact that the USA now, it's their fastest-growing sport, isn't it? Well, uh, yes, I mean... I'm technically, fast... I haven't done an awful lot of research into what you're saying, but fast... I'm, just, I'm shooting you down on that particular fast, one. Fastest growing is a, is a relative thing, isn't it? I and mean, we talk here about fastest growing economies. It depends how but, slow they're going But it is massive start, now, isn't it? it? Because they've got a massive Indian population, and it's... Uh, yes. And you you fact, can now play yes. cricket in Central Park on a regular basis, as I understand. Yes, and uh, when, the last two times I've been to, uh, to the States, I've been um, picked up by a, a taxi driver at the airport who had a cricket bat in the boot, which in some parts of the world would seem threatening. <laughs> But, um, you know, it was quite heartening in, uh, in New York. So you'd like to spread cricket to more yes, places? absolutely. Anita, what about you? Well, apart from um, I should really talk a little more about the ups and downs of the colonial era, clearly. Uh, <laughs> but um, the, the, the thing that I'm useless about is um, appointments and diaries. It's just a nightmare. Um, not professionally, it seems fine. 
But um, I've turned up to a birthday party a month early um, and got really affronted when the doorman wouldn't let me in. And um, just, in fact, on Friday, I had to tweet to say, I've written in my diary, 27th, I am seeing somebody. Is it you? (laughs) (laughs) No idea. Did you get lots of offers from Twitter? I got very strange recommendations. But, uh, yeah, I I mean, just honestly, I'm hopeless. I write things down. Uh, this is very important, don't forget it, but then we'll not say Did you not also put on Twitter, what should I tell my husband? Yeah. <laughs> no, my husband is here, and he thinks I'm the biggest prat in the world. He said, I, I, I spoke to him this morning, I said, what shall I say about my Slack thing? And he said, yeah. do you really need to ask me? Look at your diary. <laughs> so, yeah, it is, it's, it's actually, I think it's a condition. I think it's a problem. We should, should point out yeah. that it's much better to turn up a month early to a birthday party than a month early to a funeral. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, is that hit not being called in yet? My mistake, sorry. Yeah. I was going to offer being clumsy myself. Uh, I fell off a bus recently. <laughs> Thank you very much for the sympathy from the audience there. But no, it was one well, of those route master buses that were going very slowly, right, oh, right past where I wanted to get off. Right? So I thought, I'll jump off the back, this will be... At... And quite, it wasn't going slowly as I thought it was. <laughs> so I went arse over tit in front of this bus queue. And they all started laughing. <laughs> and at then a point, a taxi pulled up, and I thought he was going to get out and help me. No, tooting his horn, make sure I got out of the road. So I thought, well, I'm going to have to front this out. Right? So I got up, I bowed to the taxi queue, I bowed to the bus driver, I bowed to the, the taxi man, and then I went round the corner and had a little cry. <laughs> <laughs> So, Damien, what about you? What it's you, what it's good you... to know that physical comedy is not dead. In this... <laughs> it was unintentional physical comedy, sadly. Yeah. Um, I wish, this is a sort of professional problem, that you have to be nice to people as a politician. You can all shout at each other and be rude to each other, but to the general public, of course, it, it's terrible if you're anything other than completely polite. Uh, and I wish I, I would take people on when they say offensive things more. In particular, the next time somebody says to me, I'm not racist, but... I would quite like to have the nerve to punch them. Um, sh- I should say, as an ex-police minister, I do not advocate physical violence in any uh, <laughs> circumstances. That, that, that would be a career-defining move, not in a good way. Uh, but nevertheless... It's I... when they say, I'm not racialist, but... That's <laughs> oh, yes. So let's talk about the EU vote, D- Damien. You're um, obviously part of your director of the Stronger yep. In campaign. Um, one of the reasons for the referendum was to, in some ways, heal the rift, was it not, over Europe in the Conservative yeah, it's, Party. It's going well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it, it's going particularly well at the moment. Obviously, Boris was there, sort of saying that uh, Obama came over, didn't he? And said, oh, we, we should stay in the EU. And then Boris said, I'm not racist, but one of the reasons he said <laughs> that Obama doesn't like Britain was that he was part Kenyan. Whereas, of course, Boris himself uh, only part British, wasn't he? He was actually born in America, named after a Russian, looks like a Swedish person who's eaten another Swedish person. <laughs> and I think... And Boris is, is Turkish, isn't he? Um, Boris, he does have some Turkish Boris, an- Boris ancestry, yes, Turkish, I think. yes. But, I mean, the, the whole point is that... Um, particularly, the, the Leave campaign have said for years that um, we're not really like Europeans, we should, we should listen to the Anglosphere. This is a, a phrase they've created, meaning basically other people who speak English and mostly play cricket, as it happens here. We, our friends are Australia and New Zealand uh, and the United States and, and Canada and people like that. Hilariously, the leaders of every one of those countries have said, for God's sake, please stay in the EU. So those people who the Leave campaign have said, these are our traditional friends, these are ones we should stick by, have all said, stick with the EU. 
Is that because they're terrified of us restarting empire if we leave the EU and well, don't I, want us back? I, I think, I think we're, we're back to my Nigel Farage uh, thought here. That There are certainly people who you know, feel that, you know, let's, let's bring back the 19th century. But uh, I think most of the, the, the Leave campaign are you know, just wrong and are a bit confused about Britain's place in the world. Well, I mean, Boris basically then started talking that... You know, if we if we stayed in the EU, he compared unifying Europe to Hitler, didn't he? Mm. And it, the, when you come to Hitler, there's a rule, isn't there? Godwin's law of the internet, which is basically the longer an internet discussion goes on, the chances of somebody mentioning Hitler in, increases exponentially. Yeah. So he, I've, I've even seen Hitler suggested as a solution to England's problem on the left side of midfield as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's also an iron law of politics that if you introduce Hitler into a debate, you're losing it. Well, he's gone early on the Hitler thing, isn't he? Yeah. Basically, he, was, he was losing it on the economy, and suddenly, oh, well, let's, let's straight go to Hitler. But, I mean, it was, it, was, it was a concentrated Hitlerian period. I mean, there was Ken Livingstone who couldn't yeah. stop talking about Hitler. Because it worked and out well for Ken, didn't it? Obviously, it went really well. There was a really funny tweet, though. It said, um, has Hitler got an album out? Because he's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> you just couldn't get away from him. Also, you're very kind about not punching people in the face. There was a very nice piece in the Times. Did you see that letter? Apparently, one of your colleagues in the Tory party said, I, I don't want to stab David Cameron in the back. I want to do it in the front because I want to see the expression on his face. <laughs> I then can take the knife back and use it on Osborne. And I thought, goodness me. This I, must be they they know an awful lot I, about I, stabbing, don't they? I, I, I think some of my colleagues have been watching Game of Thrones too much and it's absorbed the... Um, atmosphere. Obviously there was talk about Hitler from, from Boris and then Cameron said well it could lead to World War 3 it's escalating all these things that could happen and apparently they're worried that the turnout's only going to be 50% so obviously the general public are fairly relaxed about the coming Armageddon it seems. <laughs> yeah. No I think turnout will be high. I, I think uh, I mean you just normally people don't talk about politics to politicians weirdly uh, if you just meet them sort of in the supermarket and things like that and for weeks now it's the only thing people have, have wanted to talk to me about in a constituency where they, they, they tend to recognise you so so my sticking my neck out prediction is that turnout will be much higher than people think but the level of hyperbole and paranoia is it's almost like a daily mail editorial at the moment <laughs> you're almost expecting somebody to go well you know if we stay in the EU it'll give you cancer and then, and then the next day, someone going, no, actually, leaving the EU will give you cancer, and it'll be, it will be the Daily Mail. Well, that, the Daily Mail actually did that, in that um, Ros Altman, who is pensions minister but was, has for years been uh, one of Britain's biggest pension experts, made the point, if the economy goes downhill, as it will if we leave, uh, then there'll be less money to go around, so, so pensions will actually be less good. And, and the following day, the Daily Mail headline was, your pensions will get worse if you stay in the EU. They just flatly reversed the, the truth of what she'd said. So, yes, I think the Daily Mail is playing an interesting and at times constructive role in this debate, but mostly it's just being the Daily Mail. And... <laughs> Well, Chris Grayling, he's been involved as well. He's, a, he's another one of the, the Brexit people. This is the man who, who said when it came to the uh, benefit welfare cap, didn't he? He said it wasn't going to lead to any uh, cases of homelessness. He said, but it may lead to some individual cases of housing mobility. <laughs> so I'm guessing that nobody's going to be poorer if we leave the EU. There'll just be some individual cases of maybe economic realignment. That's right. Uh, economic realignment involving people maybe losing such close touch with their job. Um, I think that will happen, uh, or would happen, if we voted to leave. Uh, and 
uh, all those who say, you know, this is Britain strong and free, and, and there's this whole thing about, you know, you're not patriotic if you don't think Britain should, should tear yourself away from the EU. This is just garbage. I think the technical term is garbage, uh, for the, pol the polite technical term, uh, because I don't see how reducing the size of our economy, reducing our influence in the world, uh, reducing the regard other countries holding us is in any way uh, patriotic. So uh, I will quite happily wrap myself in the flag in the face of people uh, telling me, as uh, anti-Europeans have done all my political life when I've been pro-European, uh, one of the things you constantly get accused of is being a traitor. Um, and and I'm, I'm getting close to thinking I want to punch people in the face again now, so I should calm down at this I'm, point. I'm going to go very carefully the questions. It could all kick <laughs> off otherwise, couldn't <laughs> it? <laughs> Andy and Anita, what are your what are your thoughts? I'm an interested, really interested about the turnout question because I, I'm I'm not sure what it's going to be. I, I do host a political phone-in program every week, and it's been the topic that people have wanted to talk about and not just talk about, but get very anxious about. I think both sides ratcheting up the mutually assured destruction scenario is making people really panicky. But what's really stunning about people calling up is that they keep saying we don't know who to trust. They've got their figures, you've got your figures. Everyone. And what's happening, the sum total, the zero game of this, is that they think everybody is a liar. So, and, and there is something really interesting with this, because it, it's called the impartiality paradox. So you, you go to somebody and you say, tell me what you think. Analyze this impartially. Tell me what you think. This is a binary thing. You're either in or you're out. That's the way it's been set up. So the moment one of these organizations, be it the IMF or the Small Business Confederation or someone else, comes down on a side, Immediately they say, well, you're being paid by the other side. The amount of distrust over this referendum, the lack of trust in politics, which is something that breaks my heart, um, I think has been accelerated um, the to the point no, of danger. Nobody really. actually really knows, do they? It's all sort of conjecture. It's guesswork, basically. Nobody knows whether what will happen if we try and renegotiate, if we do leave, what will happen to jobs, what will happen to the economy. Isn't it going to basically come down for a lot of people, a gut instinct, what do you think of Polish plumbers? <laughs> well, a lot of it is, is I mean, and it's right that, uh, yeah, who do people trust? And it's interesting, inevitably, we've, we've, we've all, I'm sure both sides have, have done the research on this. Uh, and weirdly, uh, among the top two groups, one of the groups people trust are small businesses, not big business, but small businesses. The other one are economists, you know, famously a profession that can never agree on anything. But people out there will believe economists. They, they may believe economists, but they don't necessarily believe the politicians when they're quoting the economists. That's, the, that's part no. of the problem, isn't it? That's right. Uh, and and you know, we, we all accept that. Um, so we're all scouring around to find economists who are on our side. And as Anita said, you know, on our side, we've got all the big economic organisations saying it would be very dangerous to leave, at which point the leave side say, oh, they're all, it's an establishment conspiracy. They're all in the pay, peculiarly, uh, of, of the European Union. It, it's certainly, uh, you know, it's definitely a, a top-heavy thing, isn't it? IMF you know, all the trade unions, OECD, President of the United States of America, and then on the other side, you've basically got Boris Johnson, John Redwood, Chris Grayling, and Nigel Farage. It, it doesn't seem quite equivalent, does it, it? It may be the case that if most people agree on a proposition, it's because the proposition is true. Most people believe that two plus two equals four, and that's not an establishment conspiracy, it's just true. But, but what, this, what this tells you, the reaction of people, and the, the venomous reaction of people to this, and, and this frequent thing of it's a conspiracy, they would say that, wouldn't they? Do you know how much money they get? What's going to happen on the other side of this referendum is what worries me, which is the debasement of our political system and our democracy, where there is no trust. 
if we're gonna if, if we're not gonna trust anybody, what are we gonna be left with? And that's that's what I worry about. And I, I don't know what we're well, gonna have. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see if it does change our political landscape. There's been a lot of talk about political accountability in Europe, and yet we have a, a an electoral system that leads to huge skewings of the public vote in uh, in terms of representation in Parliament. I don't know if that there'll be some knock-on people going back to that as an issue. I, I hope so. Um, in terms of the facts, um, there are actually, in the internet age, more facts in the world than there have ever been before, and that's just one of them. Um, but... Um, <laughs> Of those, of those facts now, I believe 96% of facts are now false. Um, so it's, it's really hard to find the 4% of facts that are uh, at least partially true. And the ones that are partially true are often completely irrelevant. So it's really hard to know. And, and in terms of the economy, yeah, there's, there's contradictions. David Cameron saying it's going to be bad for the economy if we leave Europe, but at the same time saying it could lead to a world war. Uh, you know, world wars often actually good for many parts of the economy. So, you know, there's a contradiction that he's laying out there. He can't have it both ways. And another fact that you've thrown into the mix there. Yeah, I mean, it's not a fact, it's a guess. But, but, but you know, <laughs> if you say, I think what, I think so what we've said... I think, <laughs> I think what we've seen over and again through politics is that if you repeat a guess often enough, it becomes a fact. It, it transmutes into a fact. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We talk about trust in politics. Um, the BBC, you are chairman of the, uh, the, the all-party BBC group and the charter renewal came, came out a couple of weeks ago and then a week later, BBC Recipes was taken, <laughs> was going to go down. 200,000 people furious with this. We were losing BBC Recipes. And that was, you know, people... I mean, it takes a lot to get British people riled up, but taking down recipes or... George Osborne, he said, didn't he? He said, it's a public broadcaster, not an online newspaper. But they are a broadcaster, and the public want them to publish recipes. Because people like the BBC recipes, don't they? Because they don't have any adverts on them, and you get the ingredient and the method on the same page, 
rather than scrolling down, suddenly some advert's starting, you're not quite sure where it is, you're trying to click on it to stop it, then you click on it, it takes you through to the bloody advert, then you try and go back, you can't go back, by that stage you're so hungry, you've got to phone for a freaking takeaway. <laughs> You weren't sure what I was talking about. <laughs> I've, I've, I've never looked at a recipe page in my life, so I'm, I'm impressed by your uh, dedication. But there was there was a lot of there was a lot yeah. of people. But what was funny about it was that uh, the week before the white paper came out, uh, the BAFTAs was was full of people also predicting World War Three and the end of the world and, and uh, world and all our favourite lovies were up there saying, yeah, this government was going to eviscerate the BBC and it was going to kill it, and and it didn't. Um, and, and there was this sort of cartoon character uh, sort of you know, just run over the edge of the cliff and didn't look down, and, and, and then they plummeted. But they carried on as though... But, but there is a serious point here, though, because the, the board, the board is changing, it's not the BBC Trust, so there is going to be a unitary board. Now, there's a big disagreement within the BBC as to who's actually going to be on that board, the BBC wanting it to be an independent board. John Whittingdale, very keen for at least half the appointments to be sort of government appointments. And what you don't... You want an independent BBC. You don't want yeah. people that John Whittingdale has met on Tinder suddenly... <laughs> <laughs> you, suddenly governing the BBC. You, you want diversity on the BBC board. <laughs> yeah, there are many ways of achieving it. The majority of that board need to be not appointed by the government, and that's that's... Where, where it's ended up. This, um, this, is, this is a disagreement you have with certain factions of your own party. Yeah, though, absolutely. Yeah. No, no, yeah. No. Um, I mean, if I, if I wanted to make myself um, unpopular in my own party, then, then deciding at the same time to defend the EU and the BBC is a good way to go about it, <laughs> uh, I can tell you. Uh, it's not, they're not well, there, there two universities. People were saying Britain was basically individualism plus NHS, and you could add to that plus BBC plus recipes. <laughs> we, we, we don't have much, do we, that in Britain that is number one, but at the moment, apparently, we are the soft power, the largest soft power in the world due yeah. to our cultural exports. And recipes. Um, well, uh, the, well but certainly the thanks big... to Mary Berry, they are now making lemon drizzled tray bake in Papua New Guinea. <laughs> <laughs> it is a vision for Britain, isn't it? And Make cakes, not war. I'm wondering why they don't freeze properly. The... Um... <laughs> Uh, but it's true. Now, the BBC is absolutely one of our great national institutions, and it's absolutely something that doesn't work in theory, but does work in practice. If, if, you, if you were faced with the modern broadcasting landscape, and you said, what we're going to do is charge a poll tax to everyone in the country, and, and we'll give it to a big organisation and tell them to go away and make TV and radio programmes and online stuff and recipes and whatever, you think that's the worst idea I've ever heard. But actually, that's what we do, and it produces the best broadcasting in the world. It is one of the things we're best at, which is why I wanted to defend the BBC. But I, I mean, And when we end up arguing about the, the weight of independent and non-independent directors on the board, it shows how far the debates move, because people were thinking you know, they, they'd abolish the licence fee or they'd stop the BBC doing popular... You know, they'd take Strictly off the air and ban the archers and things like that. Now, Radio 4's Any Answers was going to go. Yeah, that would, that would be the end of the, the middle classes. No, no government. It'd be the end of times, wouldn't it? Be the end, There's end no the answers left. Well, oh. isn't, well, isn't it the case that if the, one of the things that sets off Britain's nuclear deterrent 
is if, if the, the captain of the Trident submarine can't get Radio 4 mm. for a period of time, then, then it's clear that Armageddon has started. So he may as well fire the missiles. Is that radio pressure? That is pressure, isn't no, no, it, on Radio story. 4? If you have dead time, I won't Radio 4, if you have, is it, I think, about three minutes of dead time, then that is a green light. And so if things go down, because machines break all the time at the BBC, um, it's all held together by your good wishes and spit. Um, <laughs> But if things do go dead, they have birdsong that comes on, just so that there's something playing, that, that you have emergency tapes or repeated trails. Really? Just How so long has no this silence. been the case? Ever since it went Gosh. wrong and they um, let off a nuclear weapon. Right. I, no, I, I don't know, but for Was a very a Cuban long time, because some of, these, some of these voices that are on the loop tape, which I've right. heard on standby, are very, been, very clipped and old. So yeah, Because cricket's been on Radio 4 for a long time, and there's mm. quite a lot of times when nothing happens for three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Could do with some bird song, couldn't they? <laughs> Aggers, you've just set off a nuclear war. <laughs> Well, let's move on to you, Anita. You've been a signatory for trying to get a suffragette statue in Parliament Square and some success this week. Uh, Sadiq Khan has said that, yes, he would very much like to see a suffragette mm. statue in Parliament Square, subject to planning permission. Great news that the, the London Mayor still needs to get planning permission for such yeah. things. I, I was unaware. But it, you would think they would be able to do that. 11 statues are there currently. Not easy to say, we can't have a 12th. This will look out of place, you yeah. would have thought. yeah. <laughs> And they're all men. I mean, they're all, they're all statues of, of statesmen. And, and the reason I was getting sort of anxious, and still am anxious, about what happens after the referendum and who do people trust and whether they engage with the political process, I was apoplectically angry at the beardy-weirdy um, Russell Brand who said, don't bother to vote at the last election. I think that was damaging, dangerous and, and irresponsible. I think if you don't like who's on the ballot, she goes, spoil your paper. Do something, but don't lose the voice that you have because for a long time I've been researching the suffragette movement and it wasn't that long ago where half of you didn't get a say because you have ovaries, which apparently made you slightly berserk and unable <laughs> to make um, any kind of decision. So, I mean, I, I, I sort of, that's not very long ago. Not at But, I mean, if we relate this back to the EU, obviously the great thing about a referendum is that your vote will count. Part of the reason Russell Brown was saying don't vote was it, you know, in some constituencies it wouldn't count. But, obviously, referendum, every vote will count. So, young people apparently, you know, vote three to one to stay in, but a lot of them aren't registered. So, what we thought we'd do for this Slacktivist Action Group, rather than, they're they're doing phone a granny, aren't they? Part of the stronger in, phone your granny, tell her to, to vote in. Rather than that, phone a young person and tell them to get registered by June the 7th. Preferably a young person you know, yeah? <laughs> Otherwise... But, it, you know, it is important, isn't it, that pe- people do get, get registered? Yeah, because it, I, you, you, if you drop off the radar, if you don't vote, I mean, even if it's in a general election, even if it's in a safe constituency, I firmly believe if you don't register, you don't matter. If you don't register even a protest, you don't matter. Politicians, and please forgive me for saying this, they, they love it when people drop off the radar if they don't agree with whoever is standing. It, it makes life easier. You don't have to worry about those people. Well, Maybe you, it's, it's not so much doing, love, loving it, it's how, how you respond. Because I, I, I say this to, to sixth form groups, all politicians 
uh, talk to sixth formers a lot, and they say to me, why do politicians not listen to young people? And like many politicians, I soft soap them for years. Now I don't anymore. I just say, it's because you don't vote. Mm. There are fewer of you than there are of the over 60s. The over 60s, two-thirds of them vote, one-third of you vote. If you were me, who would you listen to? At which point, they all get it, and I hope they go and register to vote. But surely at which point, if we're encouraging young people to vote, age 16, we should reduce it down to age 16. At the moment, age 16, you can get married, you can fight for your country, and you can buy liqueur chocolates. <laughs> but you can't... Which, which should be banned, yeah. just well, in trip for you, everybody. But you can't, you can't vote. The thing is, if you muck up your vote, all you've got is a spoiled ballot paper. If you muck up marrying, fighting for your country, or buying liqueur chocolates, you're either going to find yourself divorced, dead, or extremely, extremely fat, and very angry that you're not at all pissed. <laughs> well, also, with the, with the Europe uh, referendum... I think it's very important for young people to vote. It's a decision that's going to reverberate for 100 years in this country. I think there's a strong argument to be made that uh, everyone from the age of naught to 18 should get two votes in this referendum and no-one over the age of 60 should be allowed to vote because the impact of it is going to be... In fact, unborn people should be allowed to vote. They should come up with some system where sperms and eggs get some kind of proportional vote... I don't know how the science would work on that because um, uh, you know, this, is, this is a decision for you know, two generations well, down the line. I mean, they were saying that the older generation much more likely to vote leave and the younger generation much more likely to vote in. So you're thinking, well, whose future is it? If, if young people aren't going to vote, the very least they could do is make a racket outside an old person's house on ballot day so as they're too frightened to come out of their own home <laughs> and at least even things up that way. That's not enough intimidation in British democracy. <laughs> yeah. But these, these statues, you're right, there's only... Yeah, I mean, there's one, there's one of it. If you go to Parliament, um, there is a little park on the right-hand side of, you know, past Big Ben, keep going right, you go past the Piers entrance, there's Victoria Gardens, and inside there's a statue of Emmeline Pankhurst. I used to eat my sandwiches there every day when I did a programme called The Daily Politics, and she's point, she, she's sort of, it, it's quite emotional, actually. She's got her hand pointed towards Parliament because she's shown women the way, but she's out of Parliament. Um, and the reason why I think, and uh, other women who've signed this... Um, petition uh, asking the mayor to change that is that this is wrong is that parliament square and really not very long ago because there are living links for this book that i wrote there are people yet living who knew the suffragettes who who fought for that right when i say fought it is a fist to face fight that took place on a day called black friday Winston Churchill was the Home Secretary. He'd asked his police not to make arrests that day he wanted to tire out the suffragettes send them back so that they just stopped bothering him and clogging up the prisons with their, their pesky hunger striking. Um, and then he'd have to force feed them, and it was all sort of, it was all inconvenient. Um, and they wouldn't go away. They absolutely refused to back off. So a five-and-a-half-hour battle took place in Parliament on the street where you can walk, where police mounted with truncheons beat these women, threw them against their concrete and used sexual violence. I mean, we've seen what has happened fairly recently in, in places like Terrier Square. That happened in our own, before, in the shadow of the mother of democracy, the daughters of this country were brutally sexually assaulted in the name of keeping the status quo. Now, I think that deserves a little more than just a nod in a history book that somebody won't read. I think to see one of the, and I don't care who it is, there are amazing women who fought for the right of, um, us to vote. So uh, 
I think it would just be proper and right and about time to have one of those suffragettes well, recognised. Yeah, and at the moment, the 11 statues, as you say, all men, seven prime ministers, then there's Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Abraham Lincoln, and Jan Smuts. Mm, now, yeah. I don't think Jan Smuts is going to be massively missed if, if, you know, if they won't give you extra playing permission. Jan Smuts is essentially there because he was a mate of Churchill's, wasn't he? He is the Churchill's equivalent of Barry down the pub, essentially. <laughs> Well, I mean, a South African statesman who believed very much in apartheid and yeah. who believed very much in... in and sort of... It, it's a very interesting thing that Jan Smuts is quite close to Gandhi. There's a lovely story about them. So Gandhi started his political career in South Africa. He was a barrister. And he couldn't practice. He was thrown off a train. It was kind of a Rosa Parks moment for him. And he decided that this just could not stand and became politicised and kept getting arrested. So he'd stir up the Indians in South Africa, particularly in the Transvaal, to rip up their identity papers. Jan Smuts was in charge at this time and tearing his hair out from the roots because he kept throwing this man in prison, he kept getting arrested, he kept throwing him in prison, very much the suffragette a kind of model, in fact, which Gandhi, in fact, replicated, learned from. But Jan Smuts finally gets rid of Gandhi because Gandhi discovers there's a bigger fight to fight in India, the land of cricket, which I'm really interested to hear, such, such changes in that country. And when he left, the day he left, Gandhi gave Jan Smuts a pair of sandals that he'd made himself. And Smuts just didn't understand, what the hell, what the hell is this? But thank God you're going, goodbye. And I think it was 50 years later, returned the sandals to Gandhi when, on his um, 70th birthday and said, I have worn these for many years. I am not fit to stand in the shoes of the man who gave them to me. So, I mean, that's a really lovely story. I'd love, the, I'd love statues to live a bit more, you know, where you, they are. You don't not... get that when you read the plaque at the bottom. No, definitely. you don't. No, you don't. So I'm not, I'm not in favour. You know, there's this whole campaign of removing troublesome people. Don't, don't remove them. Just put the stories around. I think it's much more informative. Well, I didn't well, put some nice shoes on him. Oh, some sandals, yes. Sandals. sandals. Your reason you got into it was you've written a fantastic book, oh, Sophia. Um, basically, as I understand it, you saw a picture of a suffragette outside mm. Hampton Court selling newspapers, and you thought she looked a little bit Indian, and you thought, there's a story that I've not heard about. Yeah. I will research this. And then you thought, well, I found out. Sophia Dulip Singh... I shall write the book. Yeah, People she, need yeah, to know about yeah. this. Yeah, I mean, she was she, I mean, just an extraordinary life. And, you know, we're bad at writing um, people of colour's history, but we are really bad at writing women's history too. So here's someone who's both of those things. Um, in a nutshell, the daughter of a Maharaja who owned the Kohinoor diamond, goddaughter of Queen Victoria, socialite, kind of the Kate Middleton of her day, champion dog breeder, who was a pointless, vacuous oaf of a woman until she discovered politics and became this sort of militant suffragette. And I didn't want to write this book. It's such hard work. But actually, when I found this picture, which um, you've heard of Gaydar, we have a thing, I'm Punjabi ethnically, we have Punjab, which is like from Google Earth. You recognise one of your own. And it was this picture that just didn't make sense to me. I thought, you know... I'm a political journalist. How do I not know about this, this Indian suffragette? And I looked for a book. And the fact that there wasn't one, and the fact that it took me four years to piece together this amazing story of this extraordinary woman... Um, it was amazing, though, wasn't it? Because she was there. Funny. She was a goddaughter of uh, Queen Victoria. Mm. She's an Indian princess. And she's essentially outside Hampton Court selling suffragette newspapers, the equivalent of basically going, you know, standard! Yeah, standard! Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, I mean, more, you know, the, the Black Friday demonstration, the, the, the riot that I told you about, she led, she led that march with Emmeline Pankhurst. She was one of the first to get her face punched in by a police officer. Um, she wrote these letters of complaint because she was such an aristocrat and somebody, you know, 
she was one of these... Women's magazines had just started coming out in, in 1911. And uh, she was always in the pages, you know, because she was this very fashionable woman. And suddenly, in this riot, there's a police officer who has hold of a suffragette and keeps slamming her on the pavement. And suddenly, the most famous woman in England pops up and shoves him back into the wall, saying, unhand her. And so this is, you know, this is not just somebody who did the safe stuff, but somebody who did the dangerous stuff all the time. She was also one of the first women in England to ride a bicycle. Yes, she was. Right? Yeah, yeah, you know, not, absolutely. not considered very ladylike riding a bicycle. Obviously not easy to do it side saddle. <laughs> so, you know, two feet trying to go through the same pedal. Well, they even invented a saddle for, for ladies. When they realised that these ladies were going to, no matter what anyone said, range freely and sweatily across the green and pleasant lands of England. And it was really, it was bad, you know, that they would go out unchaperoned. It really affronted people at the time. But when women just carried on doing it, and Sophia, one of the first to ride a bicycle in public, they invented a, a saddle with a hole in the middle because one that didn't have a hole would unnecessarily excite a woman and perhaps drive her mad. And so, so these very odd... <laughs> you can still find them, these sort of like very strange contraptions with a hole in the middle for your lady bits um, existed. But, you know, that, that, was, that was actually... It was, it was one of the first sort of blows for feminist freedom. It's a very weird freedom. mental image that I've now got. <laughs> Sorry about that, yeah. But it was, it was striking a blow for, like, you know, actually moving on your own without a chaperone to be able to go where you want to go uh, to be physically fit and active so the bicycle is a real feminist statement so Andy the um, you obviously mentioned cricket earlier you uh, you're a fan of the sport we have a festival of sport coming up so we thought it might be a bit of fun to look at some political odds what the, the current betting is yes you, you may have seen that uh, EU at the moment, you can get four to one on us leaving the EU. Now, for a two-horse race, that's, that's pretty amazing odds, isn't it? Yeah, if, but if it was actually a, a horse race, you would think that the jockey had a severe thyroid problem or some, <laughs> something else going on. Uh, yes, well, I guess in the age of Leicester City's 5,000 to one shot league title, when uh, four to one is basically you've already won it these days, so... Um, we're pretty much out of Europe already, as far as I can tell. I'm more interested in the, the accumulator bets, whether you can put on, you know, when you put bet on more than one event. So if you can put a bet on Britain leaving the EU and David Cameron's prophecy of a third world war breaking out coming true, I don't know what the odds on that, on that would be, maybe 15 to 1. Donald Trump uh, becoming president, he's currently about 2 to 1, I think. 2 to 1, which again, for a two-horse race is, is, you know, it's not a bad bet. Yeah. Obviously a terrible outcome, but not a bad bet. Yes, and... But just the fact that that Donald Trump is two to one to become American president is something that should chill the entire planet to its core. H how has this happened? I mean, he should be at best two thousand to one, and so something has gone very, very wrong. Uh, but so, but if you put the the accumulator Trump to become president and the world to end within ten years, uh, I reckon that's only about two and a bit to one. Uh, are you excited by a chance of a female, first female American president? Um, I, I'm sort of just worried by the two-to-one odds of Donald Trump. You, I mean, you, this, you think this of going a... online straight away, bet 365. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I, it's, just, it's just not worth it. I'd rather just hold my head in my hands until it's all over. I, I've been speaking to so many Americans who just keep telling me, this is not who we are. I do think with Trump, though, that um, clearly what's happened is Donald Trump and Boris Johnson were twins separated at birth. Um, they were born in a secret Soviet facility. 
um, on the exact same day somewhere in the wilds of Siberia. And they smuggle, they, they split them at birth, and they put one into the American capitalist system and one into British private education. And with the exact same genetic makeup, those are the endpoints of those two institutions. So it's, it's, it's one of the most fascinating scientific experiments that's ever happened. It'll come out one day. It's covered by the Official Secrets Act currently, but it will come out. OK, well, let's move, move that on. I mean, the, in terms of Boris Johnson, he is. I mean, you're thinking he will, given that he was born in America, he is eligible, isn't he, to become the American president? Which obviously, given that he wants to be the British Prime Minister, I think would be preferable if he decided <laughs> to become the American president. But we can look at now the odds for, um, for the Labour leadership if, if Jeremy Corbyn leaves. Um, at the moment, we have Lisa Nandy on six to one. We have, uh, I believe, um, top of the list, Dan Jarvis, five to one. And Ed Balls is on 66 to one. And which I think Gordon Brown was 200 to one when I checked, which would, uh, well, again, I mean, that's, that's 25 times more likely than Leicester City winning the Premier League. <laughs> so, well, uh, Ed Balls is quite surprising at 66 to 1, given yeah. that he's not actually an MP at the moment, is he? But then, I suppose, you know, Gordon Brown not either. And I did actually look for the Conservative leadership. Would you be at all interested in this, Damien? No, 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 no. No? I don't think it's any relevance <laughs> at all to anything. 3 to 1 on Boris at the moment, 5 to 1 on, uh, on George Osborne. And, Damien, you, you're in there. You're in the betting. 100 to 1 at the moment. That means I'm, was it, 20 times more likely than Leicester City? 50 times. 50 times more yeah. likely than Leicester City. I you, wouldn't waste your money. No. <laughs> You're in there with Louise Mensch and uh, Liz Kendall, who's a Labour MP. Yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> Louise Mensch, who lives in America and isn't an MP. That's right. Um, but at 200 to 1, giving it 200 to 1, John Burko, the Speaker, at the moment. We also have Andrew Strauss, ex-cricket captain... <laughs> And Nigel Farage, leader of the Conservative Party. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that does highlight quite how extraordinary the Leicester City title triumph was. <laughs> yeah, Nigel Farage is 25 times more likely to become Tory leader than they were to win the title. So extraordinary times we live in. But yeah, I think there's something to be said for um, emotional cover betting on politics as well. So if you're really... If you're uh, American and you're, you know, strongly opposed to Donald Trump, you basically put everything you own on Donald Trump becoming president. Then if he doesn't, you don't mind. You'll piece your life back together uh, under the, the safe, more safe Clinton regime. If he does become president, you get a massive compensation payout, essentially. So this is, this is the way you should all bet. You should basically, emo it's a, emotional insurance. That's how political gambling should work. I, I think, yeah, I'd, I'd rather lose the money than... Uh... Yeah, I am yeah, looking forward, though, to having Hillary Clinton as, as the next Prime Minister, if the, or not Prime Minister, obviously President. It was probably the technical description <laughs> I was after. <laughs> but, yeah, if only because it obviously means that Bill Clinton is going to have to become the First Lady, and uh, he'll be a danger to himself, won't he? So, uh, <laughs> so we, we've just got time. Let's move on to a chance for a few questions, Hazen. Before we get... It, well, look, it's keen. It's keen down the front. Before we do that, whilst other people are thinking about what to do, um, I should just tell you who's uh, here for the, the next Slacktivist Action Group. We have David Davis. It's going to be after, after the EU referendum. So we'll have David Davis here, ladies and gentlemen. We will also have Sarah Pascoe. Brilliant stand-up, Sarah Pascoe. And we will have also Dan Hodges, Telegraph columnist, will be here. So please come along. It's going to be on, I believe it's the 27th, last Monday of the month, 27th. If you want to check out who else is going to be coming up, we have Andrew Mitchell in July, Andrew Mitchell MP. We also have Chris Addison will be coming along for that one. And uh, as well as that, we have Liz Hutchins from Friends of the Earth. So 
get along. If you've got any questions, please go on the website and uh, you can ask them. We also had last time, in fact, we had somebody on from Amnesty and uh, they left a T-shirt behind. So best question for, uh, for next month, there'll be a free T-shirt. It is, I'll just get it up. Here we go. It says, there we go, Save the Human Rights Act. I would ask Damien to model it, but I'm not sure he would oblige, ladies and gentlemen. So, uh... no, I, no, I would. Oh, you would? There we go. Uh, also, you, you can have a quiz question associated with it. Oh. Which member of the current cabinet was president of the Amnesty Group at university? And if you, if you can get it in three, then you deserve a lot of T-shirts. OK, there we go. So that, there's a question, and if you, anybody who gets that and asks a question of the panel for next month, that'll be great. So, hands up, who has got a question for our panel? We have one down the front. Can you explain why, if leaving the EU is going to be such a catastrophic event for the, for the UK, that a responsible government and a, and a prime minister would actually approve a referendum in the first place? Because people would demanding it. There was an enormous public pressure for it. It's been 40 years uh, since we had the last referendum, and yeah, hopefully this will settle it for another 40 years. You know, it's, it's all our job is to believe that it will be disastrous to leave, uh, to make sure that we win this referendum. But uh, if you, you know, the longer you kept denying people a referendum, the, the, the more you're sort of pushing the plug back in the bottle, the bigger the explosion uh, at the end. And if, and if people, you know, Anita's talked rightly about sort of distrust of politicians. If you uh, appear to say, we know there's this enormous pressure for a referendum because, because of the way the parties like the parliamentary system can't cope with this, this very binary decision, then you know, the sooner you allow it, to some extent, the better, rather than just let people get disillusioned over a decade or so, saying they're not giving us a proper choice. I could sense there Damien was getting slightly tetchy right at the top of that one, wasn't he? It was almost like he was somebody who was going to say he was going to punch somebody, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. What other questions? Anybody else got a question? Just to follow that up, do you think it actually will resolve the question? Um, haven't the Brexiters already lined up their arguments for when they lose? And the argument will just continue? I mean, the argument will continue, but I think once, once you've taken a decision, you've taken a decision. I, I detect little public appetite for returning to this uh, year after year. You know, this, this is not going to be like the Eurovision Song Contest. I think once we've done it once, we won't want to do it again for a very long time. I felt that about the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> the first time I, was. I also think, I think that's one of the reasons why I, th I think the vote will be to remain, because in some, it, it, I think leaving would be a much bigger step but that sort of you can't check once it's once it's done that is a massive upheaval that you can't go back on um if people are wavering to stay in in some way it might be just putting it off for another generation or you know another 30 40 years so i think a less and we generally don't vote for massive change in this country i think no, but uh, if, if Scotland's anything to go by, uh, you know, in two years' time, it'll be, uh, it'll be all happening again. Won't it? It's, uh, I don't think it will have quelled it, will be my personal thing, uh, my guessing, especially if Boris becomes Prime Minister <laughs> three to one. But, I mean, there is another theory as to why the Prime Minister went down this route, um, and it was, if you remember the last general election, and, uh, I mean, I was, I was covering a constituency count at that time, all of the pointy-headed people said that it was going to be so close, they spent two months talking about coalitions, nobody believed there would be an outright majority, and that includes the Prime Minister. Uh, he did not think. And the promise was, if we get an outright majority, we will give you a referendum. 
So there is a school of thought that says, actually, he never thought he was going to get it or have to do it. So there we go. We so can blame the Lib yeah. Dems, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. If only they'd got more seats, it would have worked out differently. <laughs> we, we will wrap up proceedings. Thank you very much for coming this evening. Obviously, for those people who are listening on the podcast, if you could please subscribe, spread the word. If a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing, we are lethal with the Slacktoist Action Group, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so please... Thank all of our guests. I think we have learned some things tonight. We have learned that, you know, don't go up to Dam- Damien and say, I'm a racialist, but we've learned that. <laughs> Obviously, with Anita, please support the fact that we're going to be, hopefully, Sadiq Khan will find a place for a suffragette statue in Parliament Square. And from Andy, obviously, it's very much been down to cricket. We have learned <laughs> that world wars could have been caused, you know, less often if people played more cricket. And if you are ever in a taxi in New York, Careful of the taxi drivers. Most of them have a cricket bat in the boot. Andy, you wanted to come in oh, there quickly. Well, on that subject, of, uh, as well, I was well, trying well, to wrap things so up beautifully. I, I saw that. But it, the, um, you mentioned you know, cricket avoid, um, helping avoid world wars. The great uh, early 20th century English cricketer C.B. Fry, he, uh, there's a story that he went to Germany in the 1930s and spoke to von Ribbentrop and tried to persuade him that German youth should take up cricket um, as, as uh, you know, a means of uh, you know, physical... Recreation and the Nazis spurned that offer, and a few years later, World War II broke out. But you know, if he'd been successful, unquestionably everything would have been fine. On that note, ladies and gentlemen, please give a big hand for our guest this week, Damien Green MB, Anita Anand, and Andy Zoltzman. Thank you very much. Good luck. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to yeah. bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to <laughs> pretend that I don't right Hold now. it in. Hold on. And our current faves. And Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.